Welcome to the podcast. We have a great show for you today. We're going to kick things off today by talking about an article from The Atlantic that says, when it comes to COVID, we're getting a lot of this information just wrong. Also, masks have been put to the test, and we're going to talk about this recent report that has some really interesting information about mask testing. Also, we're going to discuss the Biden administration and how he has appointed some pretty key people that are going to be looking at things like cryptocurrency, artificial intelligence, and security. And we're also going to wrap up with a Apple patch that solves a vulnerability that's going to have a pretty big global impact because of this Pegasus software by this Israeli NSO group. All this and more coming up on the Sunday Brunch. Enjoy. Welcome to the Sunday Brunch, a weekly news show where we ask the big questions on the week's tech, science, and medicine. I am one of your hosts, Matt, and I'm joined by my good friend and co-host, Dr. Marty. Dr. Marty, how has your week gone? Oh, I love that question, Matt. Uh, I am convinced that this week I am in the world to change the world. How are you doing? <laughs> and, and what are you changing? What's what's uh, moving around? I, I am changing the way um, our future leaders are are appropriately accounting for their actions. I'm changing the way my colleagues are are going about their normal routines by effusive compliments. I'm I'm really doing God's work right now. Yeah, I uh, so so the one I, I during COVID and I think you and I have talked about it that there's you do a lot. I did a lot of cooking at home and I think that that's great. I do a lot of cooking with my husband, which is which is wonderful. Um, but I have noticed that like now. Like you kind of you kind of recycle some recipes and, and like and like I have kind of my usual standbys. So I now find myself when I'm at Costco, I I have my usual stuff. But but now I'm starting to think some of these like microwavable dinner things are not a bad option. <laughs> like when it's like some like thing in a bag where you just boil it or whatever, and it's kind of pre done. I'm like I'm a big fan of the like insta dinner program. I'm like I don't mind cooking, but I'm like some of these things are becoming a little bit more. They're like better than Hungry Man, but I find myself like putting. Yeah. I used to do one per week and I'm like sliding in like two because I'm just like, I don't really want to think about it. So I think I'm becoming that that old man that needs uh, like uh, frozen dinners or something. You know, I was cooking for myself quite a bit and I loved it. And I was actually, it was a pretty healthy diet. At some points I was vegetarian, some points I was not, but like my diet was great. And then when I started going back in full time to the office, I noticed that um, I definitely gained a bit of weight because I'm going to Trader Joe's or Sprouts every day because I didn't have time to make dinner to turn into lunch last night, which means I need to get carry out and the grocery store again for the interim. And I'm like, I'm in the cycle of, of the hamster wheel or whatever it is that I just, I miss my giant pots of wonderful things that people all enjoyed, including myself. That that part of me is, is not with me right now. And it's just, it's so sad because I was so good. Well, I found myself, it was last week, I was headed to a meeting downtown and I'm like, I had that urge of, I'm like, I need a Dunkin' Donut. And I like mm. the, there's like one of them, I think it's like the, what, what is the one that's named after the cheesecake? Uh, I'm blanking on it. Anyway, they have a donut that's like cream filled. That's the one I like. And then for whatever reason, every once in a while I get a hankering for Dunkin' Donuts coffee. There's something about the flavor of that particular coffee that I have, and so yeah, kind of in the in the now that I'm still going in the office every once in a while, I do kind of fall into the I could have had a smoothie for breakfast or a piece of fruit, but it's like eh, I'm on my way, so I might as well just pick up a donut and a cup of coffee. I'm really feeling it, so I do miss I do miss the 
the domesticity that was allowed from working from home, even though I love getting out, but we'll talk about it at another point. Uh, there are so many weird adjustments about going back into work right now. The idea of going back to normal is such a strange way to frame it because there ain't nothing normal about what it's like right now for me at least and I, I'm looking forward to talking about that with you at some future future time but right now it's like I, I feel like I'm in the twilight zone a lot. <laughs> well I think it's time for us to jump into everyone's favorite segment what is going on in Dr. Marty's COVID corner. Oh my gosh well how did you know I'd have some things going on? I, I think I've told the audience before that one of my favorite resources for just understanding a big picture that combines the medical with the social, with the political, um, is The Atlantic. I think their reporting has had some fantastic stories. And there's another one that came out recently that I really appreciated, and it was called Waning Immunity is Not a Crisis, comma, Right Now. And... It speaks to these fears and the hubbub that we've got going on and the the general murmurs of people, especially those like myself that have a little bit more invested in the neuroses of COVID, um, that we are all on a slippery slope and the other shoe's about to drop any moment now. We're paying attention to the stories of the breakthrough cases and you're getting the interviews of everybody who's been on their breakthrough case and what it was like. And we saw Oscar de la Hoya was recently a breakthrough case and like, ah, uh, we need to get boosters. And I know people who have gone in. I know people who have been untruthful about getting their, their booster shot. I know people who uh, have just gotten it because it's, it was allowed everywhere it was. But I'm starting to hear the booster folks and they're kind of like the secret people you want to poke to find out what it's like and was it necessary? And now are they the ones who are invincible and should you walk behind them when you're in a crowd? Uh, and the article kind of touches on why this is all wrong. It's good. With these folks that get boosters, like we were, you're talking about like super immunity before we talk about like if you had COVID and then you you ended up getting one poke. So are these people, did, did the article say that now these people are going to be the super immune? <laughs> no, it didn't. It didn't refer to them. The, the super immunity actually came from an NPR story. So I don't know if the reporting was as long form careful as was The Atlantic was. Um, but the superhuman immunity article, I'm glad you remembered that because you remember you're talking to somebody who supposedly has that now. And I expect the appropriate amount of respect uh, a cape, when you speak to a me. A cape. You, you need a cape uh, so, so we clearly identify A it. cape, but you made some disparaging comment about how I shouldn't be in spandex or nobody should see any of us in spandex. And if you had asked me that during when I was cooking for myself, then I would have maybe argued with you. But at this point, you're right. I, I do not need that. Nobody needs that. Uh, so, okay, going back to the, the superhuman immunity and all these, these catchphrases that make us happy, um, we just don't understand immunology. Like, we just don't as a general public. And because of that, we're coming up with all these weird metaphors to try understanding what immunity means, what infection means, what, what vaccination means. And this article says, like, they're not monoliths. They're dynamic things themselves, and we got to start looking at nuance and start thinking about it as it really is. So there's like one example that's been given before, and they, they can mention to it again. Um, we talk about an asymptomatic COVID infection. Well, let's say you've been exposed to some virus. It never infects any cells, but it's floating around, and your immune system has done a great job of staving it off. But because you were exposed to some virus, 
you go ahead and get yourself a nasal swab. And you know what? It picks up a little bit of that virus. Well, it never infected your cells or it never infected more than a handful of cells. It was always under control. Um, and you come back as positive because it was one of these guys that was, you know, just kind of floating around in your in your nasal cavity. Well, I mean, how else did it enter, right? So um, they call that an asymptomatic breakthrough case. Well, that really wasn't a case. That was your immune system doing its job. You were never infected, really. Uh, but because of the way we test it, it's seen like that. Because what an actual infection means isn't something that we understand. Like there's a threshold that you've had enough viral particles invade your cells and multiply at a high enough level so that we know, like we're not making those distinctions right now when we're getting tested. And similarly, when we think of a vaccine, we're kind of envisioning it as a matter of um, another shoe's about to drop at all points. And part of that, rightly so, we should be alarmed and we should be vigilant, um, but we're also very, very alarmist in the way that we're, we're looking at it. And the so far, the, the article says the vaccines are doing a freaking fantastic job of what they've, like fabulous job of what they've been supposed to doing supposed to be doing. And that includes preventing from severe illness, which is another thing that we don't have a clear understanding for, but I will explain what that means in a minute, and what the immune system is actually supposed to be doing to fend off viruses to keep them from getting moderate or severe. So that terminology of moderate or severe is actually pretty simple, at least when you go from mild to moderate. So asymptomatic means you feel nothing. Mild is a gigantic football field length of, of definition possibility. And a, and a uh, mild case refers to your oxygen saturation. So whatever symptoms you have, you might not be able to hold in a lot of water because your gut is overstimmed and you've got massive upset, or you might have massive muscle issues, or you might have even some heart problems, but really it's based on your oxygen levels. So if your oxygen levels fall below 94%, then you are classified as having moderate COVID instead of mild. Now, I'm somebody who sits around 96, 95 normally. So for me to go to 94 isn't a huge deal. And if I would report, report to my physician friends that I'm at 93 this morning, they don't tell me to go rushing to the hospital because I'm a moderate COVID infection. Now they're like, yeah, that's kind of you. I mean, Worry when you get into the 80s. That's when you should go to the hospital. So there's other versions of how clinicians will, will interpret this as well. Now, that was me. Not everybody's the same, and some clinicians would disagree with that. I mean, again, talk to your clinician. That's the big disclaimer here. You always talk to your clinician. But when people say they're doing research on their own and there are memes going around social media on this, we can all do research on our own to a certain extent, but you really do need somebody who knows how to synthesize this information and to explain it in a really useful way. This article from Atlantic explains it in a really useful way. And the big take home message is that we're in a little bit of a panic mode around waning immunity and we don't need to be um, because it's actually waning at an appropriate rate and the types of immunity that we're imagining are very limited in their definition. We're saying immunity is any kind of immune response, and that's not true. What we're referring to is the circulating antibodies that are kind of like the thugs of the immune system who are going around waiting for any invader to be there that they recognize and just glomming on and preventing it from entering any of our cells. That's great, that's what you have after an infection. But 
this uh, this great example they give us, can you imagine if every single thing that ever infected us maintained the antibody levels that we had when we were trying to fight off illness the first time, if they never waned? We would explode. The amount of cells that would be in our body would be way too volumetrically large for us to be able to contain it. And so the point is there's a normal growing of circulating antibody response, and then we devote a lot of our resources toward memory responses, toward immune memory, so that we're busy planning tactically with our memory B cells and our T cells how to be more efficient in our attack should the virus come back. This is what happens with everything that makes us sick. This is why after we get a flu the first time or a cold the first time or a lot of things the first time, the next time it's never as bad. Even if it knocks us for a loop every once in a while, like these things aren't usually really problematic because we have enough memory built up so that when it hits and if it does invade our cells and Delta is really good at multiplying quickly and so it's likely to invade our cells, by that point, we have very efficient memory mechanisms and those can create very, very clean antibodies that will attack very efficiently and remove COVID from the system before it becomes severe in a more jargon way. So we're unlikely to ever need going to the hospital. And those numbers are different based on countries, but those are also kind of choppy. So we've reported here and other news sources that early on, we thought that there was a 90% uh, reduction rate in your likelihood of getting a uh, any kind of infection of COVID after you've been vaccinated. But then, or, or excuse me, a hospitalization after you've been vaccinated. But then in Israel, all of these folks were vaccinated and we were seeing that there were numbers that were coming out that maybe that, that efficiency rate was more like 60% or 50% or 40%. We were worried about it. Was it hospitalizations? Was it actual infection rate? It started to get confusing. But this article points out that those studies are a little difficult to look at because they were only looking at populations of people that already were predisposed to have a nastier reaction when they looked at it. It wasn't across the population as a whole, which is going to skew your data quite a bit. And the data in the United States is also that those that are suffering with more severe infections or moderate to severe infections tend to have pre-existing conditions, the majority certainly so, and tend to be older. So um, if you take the average of the population, then you can find that most of us are still, not that you shouldn't take care of, there are people who certainly need this booster. Uh, especially people who are immune compromised are gonna need the booster. And we mentioned this before, there's kind of a logistical issue about needing more circulating antibodies, which that booster is gonna help with to prevent people from getting sick at all, especially in the, um, in, in the, uh, the, the, the workers who we, we don't have leeway with, who have to be there. So like our healthcare workers or our, the essential workers, you know, the, the, the teachers, like we need them in their places of, of employment because our society has to function. And so those folks are going to probably rely on these so that the rest of us can function in society as well. Um, but it's not all just a medical issue and the panic that we have. Now, that being said, I talked to someone very recently in a business meeting in another in another part of the country who had a breakthrough case and they were you know, they were down for the count. They had 14 days of infection. And the thing that we have to remember in the reporting of all of this is the stories that make the news or the stories that are worth telling are the ones that are scarier to us. They're the impactful ones. So we have a skew of the data um, for those that have been immunized of leaning toward 
the, the pessimism of how it's not doing what it's to be doing. But that is in fact not the case. It, it is, seems to be working quite well. And I think that you should take a read if you have a chance because not that, it doesn't say that we're out in the clear, but you also have to understand what immunity is. That metaphor that came from the Atlantic before, it's like an umbrella. And if you're in a rainstorm, it can only do so much. Uh, immunity is not a protection from everything. And that's the biggest misconception I hear from people is, well, we're vaccinated. Why don't we go to a wedding of a thousand people? If everybody's vaccinated, nobody will get sick. Well, a vaccine doesn't exactly work like that. There are people who can get ill with, with a vaccine still. They can get infected and they can still shed virus and you can too. So these nuanced understandings are really important. I think it's worth worth a minute to, to understand those things. Yeah, I think The Atlantic, and if you've never read any pieces from The Atlantic, I highly recommend it. And, and they're also one of those people who, if you can support them, they are one of the... They're, they're a publication that's worth supporting. They they do some excellent reporting and do a lot of really interesting pieces. I So, so Dr. Murray, I guess my question for you is, during a public health crisis, um, you know, under our under our previous president, the messaging was really confusing and it was hard for people to understand. Um, now, you know, the, the we've we've simplified the message: get vaccine, wear the mask, and then behind that has been this fear of of people dying. Uh, so, lingo and language and those type of things around the pandemic. Um, has been difficult to wane through. And then also, you know, when people are hearing about, I mean, you and I talk about, you know, spike proteins, we talk about mRNA, we talk about some of these things that, you know, kind of Joe public probably doesn't even know about. All they know is I need to go and get the vaccine. I don't know what, what it took to develop it. Do you think that during sort of a public health crisis that we've oversimplified the term so that some people aren't, aren't really going into um, a lot of these details, they're just getting it done. And so when they see booster, they're like, well, I must need this. So I need to go in and do it. I mean, I, I mean, what, what is your thoughts right now in regard to the language and understanding some of these processes? And is it important to the average consumer? I, I think the problem runs deeper than that. Honestly, this is something that's been on my mind for quite a long time. And here it's actually come to a head much more clearly is there's a kind of scientific illiteracy that extends beyond those that we would say are are intentionally illiterate or are ignoring this because they're 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 actively not wanting to be anti-science. But the truth is science is highly technical. This biological biomedical science is highly highly technical. It's essentially learning foreign language. Uh, I think that it might be intelligent at one point or another for us to consider foreign language acquisition, which is really important. And I think that uh, I, I, I'm grateful for the, the education and I want everybody to be foreign language uh, proficient in something. But I think as part of foreign language acquisition, we should also teach science literacy. Uh, and I think this stems way earlier than a crisis. So if you were to ask in a pessimistic way, I think it's too late with what we're dealing with right now to actually appropriately handle this. I don't think it's that the right word wasn't chosen uh, because we're always going to be limited by our understanding of a concept with a preconceived notion. And if that preconceived notion never tapped into the breadth of what the vocabularies of science has to offer, the concepts, or at least biological sciences in this way have to offer, um, 
then we can't imagine what someone tells us by immunity or by vaccination or by infection. For us, it's still going to resonate like we were little kids and our mom's giving us Dimetap or amoxicillin that tastes like bubble gum or like we have a very, very, very uh, rough and oh, I use the term oversimplified too much, but it's just it's crude understanding of how things work. You take two of these and call me in the morning is it speaks to an entire generation of how we felt about our relationship with medicine. Uh, but it's a catch 22. Um, we want to have we want to have some agency over our own health, but we don't have the capacity to make well-informed choices if we didn't learn this literacy along the way. And people will claim to learn literacy by pseudoscience, like the ivermectin debacles that are going on, or the UV light that happened earlier, or there are people who are, you know, just telling you, you just eat enough turmeric and, and you won't have problems either, which we don't know this to be the case, by the way. Um, none of those are recommended. In fact, I would I would recommend against all of those as, 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 as treatments. But because we don't feel comfortable blindly following a set of guidelines, then it's really upon us to be the people who take responsibility for this lack of, of medical and scientific literacy and do better with our with with our next steps. Like, how are we going to train people, not even generationally, but like in between pandemics or adult education or, and, and hopefully part of this pandemic podcast is going to pique people's interest in ways to understand really complex things so they become literate in this stuff too and that when you know dr marty says something you're capable of of questioning that and arguing with me and saying are you sure you're not oversimplifying or why are you just listening to the atlantic that critical thinking is so so important no i agree and and i think you know you just hit on something that that just remind me that that sometimes our culture which I don't know, right now we're, our culture sort of evolving around with its relationship with medicine. But I think for, for a lot of people, it's like, well, I saw this pill that's on TV, it's supposed to fix it. And we don't really question it. We're just like, or we're prescribed something. It's like, it makes it go away. And we're just good with that. And and I think, and then, but then, we, like you said, you also have the people who are looking for that are looking at turmeric or, you know, like I know I had some family members who they were like, well, I watched Dr. Oz and this person talked about if you take cayenne pepper, in high concentrations, it will get rid of your high blood pressure. It's like, you should consult with a physician before you start taking 800 milligram tablets of concentrated cayenne pepper. That's, you, you might want to chat with them, but but they just watch it on TV and go, that'll fix my problem and, and it'll be good. So, I mean, it's 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 just it's just an interesting dynamic right now. But I was, I was curious, um, it looks like this week, uh, masks got a little bit of a of a thorough testing, and there was an interesting article. So I was just I was just kind of curious. I think it was it was what Nature.com had a big write up on masks. Was that it? Yeah. So yeah. if you're looking at if you want to go into the medical literature, just more and more detail. Atlantic does a really thorough job of mixing everything together. If you want to look at uh, really really reliable cutting edge what's the newest to come out without going to the primary literature the actual studies themselves then you go to a place like the journal nature or science or the journal of the american medical association or the new england journal of medicine or the lancet which is a british version or you you go to some of these sources so in nature a story came out very recently that said okay uh, they're referencing a study that had been conducted in bangladesh in some of the rural areas where they found that um, mask use is definitely good at 
curbing COVID, but it was done at a clinical trial level. So the first piece of this story that was important was that it was done at the level of a clinical trial and not anecdotal evidence, not just a basic study. A clinical trial means that you take um, one form of treatment like a surgical mask, and then you take another form of treatment and you compare them against each other so that you don't have a placebo effect. Um, and Or you can rule out the placebo effect rather. And then you determine, once you rule out and you tease that out of there, what was the end effect of the mask wearing. So they were able to increase the amount of mask wearing in these villages in Bangladesh or these rural areas in Bangladesh. And they found that um, after doing so, they didn't have a huge decrease in the number of cases, but there was a definite decrease in the number of cases. And it was twice as pronounced if you wore a surgical mask rather than a cloth mask. So you had literally twice the efficiency, even if it has three layers of material, the surgical mask, the disposable ones that you get when you go out into hospitals or doctor's office um, are quite, in terms of the efficacy of them, they're a lot more effective than you think. And they're more, they're certainly more effective than cloth masks. So what this, all, you know, of course, mask wearing is helpful. Duh, mask wearing is helpful. But what this article really alarmed me to, in addition that there was a, a clinical trial that now has solid ground evidence so that the naysayers don't say it doesn't actually do anything. Um, when you wear, remember, before we said that a surgical mask or any kind of mask only prevents you from emitting COVID from your own mouth. But here we're saying that masks also protect you from getting COVID. And depending on what mask it is, is a big deal. A surgical mask, it looks like, will prevent about 75% of the particles that could carry COVID from entering into your face. That's a lot considering an N95 is the grade that we save for the people who are getting fluids, you know, tossed their way in a hospital. So 75 or 76% ain't bad. Um, a cloth mask, if it's like in three layers, at best you're going to get is about 37% of those molecules blocked. So you actually do yourself a big favor by getting those surgical masks. Now questions are, should you just buy the disposables? Yes, the answer is just buy the disposables. But even if you wash the surgical masks, even if you scrub them, it's still very good at protecting. So that was what this, the, it references a study in there that that was done. There are other ways that masks can be cared for. Um, I have read that you can put it in a rice cooker on the steam setting, and that will be a way that you can, I mean, look this stuff online. Usually it's not good to do on your own. Um, just get a disposable. It's way easier. The surgical masks aren't very expensive. You get packs of 50 or 100 of them for when you go out. If you have a good mask, if you've got that N95 or you've got a KN95 even, and you're wearing it and you can't wash it because it can it could disrupt the integrity of these masks, then stagger the use of these masks to give them at least a few days, at least about five days in between the uses so that it gives time for the, the, the particles to shed off of them so that you're not going to be reapplying it in your in your face area where it's likely to be that you're going to contract the virus from your face if anywhere. So um, yeah, wear a mask, we knew it. But now we have added evidence that it does prevent more of a spread. And if you're going to, it's not crazy. It's It, it increased it by about 10% if you're just wearing the mask itself. But that's twice as much as the cloth masks. 
still the biggest benefit of the mask wearing is that you're not spreading the disease to other people. I was just kind of curious. So a lot of people are double masking. So they're putting like the surgical mask over, over like a cloth. What are your thoughts on that? Is that more protection? Is yeah, it just more it layers? Is. Okay. It's more protection. Yeah. Double masking is more helpful. Uh, it sometimes is more uncomfortable, but yeah, it does work pretty well. And in what sort of your thoughts, you know, we have a lot of people who were, I think, I think that's an, I think I'm I going think. back like <laughs> consult, consult on that one. Yeah. Consult yeah. On that yeah. One. For sure. And, and like we talk about KN95s and N95 masks, um, you know, cause, cause those are a little bit pricier. They do a better job essentially. Um, now like on some of those, you were kind of talking about alternating them, but should, is there some times where you're like, I, I would recommend you do the N95 or KN95 over the surgical mask? Are there like a big event or social setting or traveling or, or what do you think? I'm a believer that if there's a big event, then you need the most protection possible. It tends to be that most people don't have an N95 or access to an N95. Um, so, you know, go with the KN95, which is, according to Chinese regulations, it's still filtering out 95% of those particles. That's why it has that name, which is the N95 that goes to the American standards. When you actually wear an N95 in a hospitalized setting, what you're doing is you're putting a mask on. Your face has to be somewhat shaved if you're a man. Um, you get a special fitting. They will test the aerosols to make sure that nothing is getting through that would that is of the appropriate size. Like you're taught how to wear it the right way. For those of us that are just going out into the world, we're probably not wearing the mask the best way anyway to prevent 95% of the molecules going through, especially for those of us that have facial hair. Um, but they're more protective than surgical masks. And a KN95 isn't that expensive. You can get them at about $1.20 a mask. So for those special occasions, wear the KN95. There's another one called, I think, a K94 or KN94, which is a Korean version, which is 94%. And also between 94 and 95%, I think it's pretty close that you're not going to notice a whole lot of difference. Uh, but those kinds of masks are the ones that I would recommend wearing for those times when you're like, I'm with a lot of people right now. I'm going to wear. After this, we're going to come back. We're going to discuss a little bit more COVID. And of course, we need to dive into our technology schadenfreude hour as we always do with Matt. So here's a break and some words from our sponsor. This week's episode is brought to you by Wet Panda Dry Bags. You know, it's pretty basic to think about dry bags, but it's so important. You know, when we're headed out to paddleboard or we're headed out to hike, um, I reach for my dry bag all the time because, you know, I have a digital camera, I have different equipment with me, and I am not always confident that my backpack is completely waterproof. So I just tuck it into my dry bag and I know that it's going to stay safe. And I even pack a wet panda bag in my gym bag because, you know, if I'm swimming, I can toss my swimming suit into the dry bag and close it up. And I know that the rest of my bag isn't going to get wet and nasty. So check out Wet Panda. They are exclusively sold on eBay. Just search Wet Panda Dry Bags and look for that panda paw. Thank you so much, Wet Panda, for your sponsorship of the Sunday Brunch. And we're back. And as promised, I will be offering one more tidbit of the COVID corner before we move on to our technology talk with Matt. And that tidbit of the COVID corner is coming from a recent NPR story that asks, what do we know about breakthrough infections and long COVID? Again, I, I wanted to be hard hitting today so that we talked about things that were on the back of a neurotic person's mind, projecting myself as a neurotic person to everybody else. But Matt, 
What are your worries around long COVID? Well, I think right now, you know, I'm just sort of in this place of are we ramping up like we were before or are we somewhere in between? Because, you know, at least in my my local community, Delta's really not discussed a lot. Um, you know, it's kind of like, well, there's guidelines or we recommend. We're not seeing sort of this hardline mandate like we were with COVID. And so like it's it's just been inconsistent. So, like some restaurants, the staff is masked up. Some stores, people are masked up. Some like I, I, I'm wearing a you know, I really like the surgical mask for when I go to the gym because it, one, the nose piece just fits better. And then also because it gets sweaty and nasty, I like to just throw it away at the end of it and, and it works great uh, versus the cloth ones. They just don't bind my nose that well. And I, I don't know, like I just feel like the paper sort of absorbs the funkiness anyway. But I, I'm wearing a mask in my gym, but the majority of people aren't. And I really feel like in a gym setting, especially there's just a lot of yep. people and it's kind of funky. Yep. But but at least in my community, it's not it's just doesn't seem like there's a ton of conversation about the about the Delta variant. Uh, but I but in in and I think you've done a really great job of of encouraging me and I know our listeners to be more informed. You know, I'm keeping an eye on my local public health uh, website and they have some great stats and a dashboard. And I also look at my at my states. But when I'm looking at those dashboards, I'm like uh, things like ICU capacity. We're over 100 percent. Um, we're seeing this in lots of different regions in Colorado. So the indicators are are not showing, it's not like, oh, we're doing okay and it's not an issue. Looks like to me, like it's becoming a growing issue, but I'm just not seeing the same messaging I am with COVID. So I'm just, and I don't know about your region, but I mean like ours just seems like it's out there, but it's not having a lot of serious emphasis and we're not seeing a lot of behavioral changes. So. I don't know if that's if that's the same case where where you're at, but but that's kind of where I'm I'm having to make my own guidelines and my own rules and just kind of say when I go out I'm masking up when I'm going out in public I'm going to the store I'm wearing a mask I'm just treating it like I did with COVID even though I'm vaccinated I'm just saying I need to wear a mask indoors and so I, I I'm just kind of taking my own mandates I guess I don't I hate to say my making my own mandates or making my own guidelines but I'm kind of treating it like I did with you know you know under COVID but. A lot of my community really isn't, so I, I don't know. Maybe there's a breakdown in communication or people just aren't taking it quite as serious. You know, I think this goes back to the conversation we had about understanding what immunity is. Uh, just to give you a point of reference, during our peak last year, there were about 250,000 cases a day uh, of, of COVID in the United States. Is that right? 250,000. Crazy high numbers. Um, in June... We had around 12,000 cases a day in the United States. Okay, think about the orders of magnitude there. It's like 20 times. Right now, we're at about 146,000 new cases a day. So if you're asking what the trend is, I'm telling you it's back toward our worst times. Um, but it's, it's specifically hitting in regions. If you look at a heat map, it's really hitting hardest in the unvaccinated regions for a lot of reasons, in part because there's more spread in unvaccinated folks but also the public health measures that help prevent the spread are relaxed in so many places. So, and especially in those that are, are, are populated with people who aren't vaccinated. There's, there's a, a pretty large correlation there. So um, that's one piece. The second is if you look at how COVID is spreading, and I recommend if people are really data nerds and you really wanna go there, there's a website called the IHME, it's the 
Institute for Health Metrics of something, uh, uh, epidemiology, I think. Uh, and it's run out of the University of Washington, I believe. And you can go through each state and see the trends. And it's actually worthwhile going through different countries because different countries are going to predict what happens to you. Sorry, that's that's the way it's going to work. And different states are going to predict what happens to you. And one of the things going on in Colorado now, you're getting a, a, your spike or you're getting your increase. And it happened in Colorado about a month ago or in California about a month ago. Um, no state is going to stay flat in its entirety. Everything is bubbling up. It all has potential energy in it of an outbreak. And so it's a matter of time before that spike happens. Um, but you want to have fewer spikes, so you want to hold it off for as long as possible. But just because you've held it off for as long as po possible doesn't mean you're in the clear. You have to understand that. Like, it's a matter of time before it hits again in Ohio, or it hits again in New Hampshire, it hits again in Michigan, and it hits again in Wyoming. Like, these places will go through oscillations. And just because it hasn't happened in five months doesn't mean it's not going to happen. It's going to happen again. So you, you just have to be vigilant and the people around you won't pay attention to that because there's no immediate threat. But pay attention to if numbers are crawling up because you're going to hit that big bump and you're going to go on toward that spike. And you, and you have to pay attention to what that's happening. Um, if you look at a country like Israel, um, or if you look at the projections of what's going to happen in the next few months for a lot of regions, especially California, um, then you're looking at a not great public health because people are kind of tired and not doing as good a job as they used to, but not terrible, but decent. Um, and most vac mostly vaccinated. Then you're going to see what looks like uh, a half of a spike. So you'll see the cases rise and then they stay pretty toward a third of a peak or half a peak. It's predicted for the next few months and it might be longer. So while we might not have 250,000 cases a day and that might last for three to four months, we might have 150,000 cases a day that is going to last six months. And and so if you look at the numbers, they're still going to be quite high for a long time. And they're going to be moderately high. I mean, that's way higher than 12,000 cases. But um, we're not necessarily in the peak. We're not good at looking at it that way. So we're not, we're not imagining um, what the world is looking like with the data. Now, my question, and I said it's going to be five minutes and I've gone and waxed poetic again, but I'm sorry. I, I have to keep talking about long COVID is the thing that people just don't think about, and they should. Uh, and it's not to be alarmist, but it's that we're still learning what COVID is and what long COVID is, and different variants are going to produce different forms of, of the virus and infection and the potential for a long haul. Uh, long COVID refers to the COVID that lasts longer than about 20 days or 28 days. So when you still have symptoms, there are a lot of people, and some very close to me, who still can't smell or taste very well and they had it a year ago. There are people who still have neuropathies, there's still people who can't catch their breath, there's still people who have brain fog. That can last an extraordinarily long time. And there have been estimates throughout time that have gone from like 5% to 20% of people who have COVID can get long COVID. I had long COVID. I had symptoms for more than 28 days. It was nerve wracking because I didn't know how long they'd be lasting. They eventually mostly go away in people. Uh, but the question is now that there's a new variant around and most people are vaccinated, then are we likely to get long COVID? And there's uh, a mixed response. People don't really know the answer, but it seems like, and there was data that came out of the UK fairly recently that said you're about half as likely to get long COVID if you're vaccinated than if you're not. So that was some reassuring news. And there, there is some explanation for this. And that reason is 
Sometimes we think that long COVID, and this is one hypothesis, that long COVID comes from COVID that's stuck inside your body at very small levels. The virus is still there. And it's just like pissing you off every once in a while. Sorry for the term, but I said it. Um, it's just agitating your immune system and it's causing you to have a response. And so you have some weird responses that last a very long time and you can't, your body just isn't getting rid of it. It allows this little bit to stick around for a long time. If you're vaccinated, it would prevent that from happening because your body's ready to take action and, and just wipe it out when it gets there. The other possibility is that you have an autoimmune response, and this might be true in some people, and in that case, the vaccine may or may not be as effective, and therefore the jury is still out and we're waiting to see. But based on some early data, it looks like you are less likely to have long COVID if you've been vaccinated, and that's worth considering because long COVID is terrible. It's not fun, you don't know when it's gonna end, and it could really inhibit your life if you let it. So there was my COVID. It wasn't just a corner today, it was about half the room, or maybe a little more than half the room. But I think there's some stuff that is broad that's worth talking about that it's gotten, as you've pointed out really well, Matt, it's got it's got kind of smudged along all of the new news of variants and boosters and deltas and, and vaccines and, that people kind of forgot what it is to have a, a pandemic. Yeah, and I think particularly with all these variants that are coming out, um, I think for some folks are like, well, which variant do I need to pay attention to? And, and right now, Delta gets most of the news. Um, we talked about the, what, the C12 and then also the Mu variant. So people thought we were saying new, it was actually M-U. No, the, mu, mu, the Greek mu. letter for friction mu. in physics. Yeah, 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 but some people are like, is it new? No, it's like, not mu, but mu. Uh, mu. So, so, so yeah, so I think, I think that there's just, and I, and I get it, that there's just a lot of COVID news that's out there and people are trying to sort through it. And also a substantial amount of misinformation about how to treat and care for yourself. Uh, I mean, I mean we're, we're, we're still seeing stories about ivermectin and uh, yeah, it's it's been quite a news cycle. So. Yeah, but you know what's interesting is we have an administration, the Biden administration is taking a very strong arm approach. Like I think uh, recently the Biden administration said that any company over 100 people large has to have either uh, a vaccine mandate or the, the weekly testing for everybody to, to continue running. And that kind of brings me into the the Biden administration and tech regulations, because it's also been a week where we're learning a lot about this administration is rather is rather hawkish toward regulations. In some ways, I don't disagree with it, but I wanted to hear your opinion. I want to hear some of the stories because I think it's time for the tech talk from <laughs> from Matt. Sure. I Yeah, I think the Biden administration, uh, you know, came out this week with with a couple of important pieces, I think one is the SEC is saying that cryptocurrency needs to be regulated. And we knew that this was coming because, you know, Biden uh, intentionally sought out this guy and his name is by uh, Gary Ginsler. And he, you know, he's kind of well known in the cryptocurrency space. Uh, you know, he, he was the ideal pick. And, and cryptocurrency is one of those things that last year we saw it. People were making a lot of money. It was sort of a joke, you know, to some folks. They're like, is this something I need to take seriously? Yes or no. Uh, Gary Gensler was actually, he taught a class at MIT about cryptocurrency. And he was saying, this is something that we need to be paying attention to. It was great that uh, President Biden was progressive enough to, uh, seek him out and have him there because cryptocurrency, you know, you know, I personally feel it's like it is something that needs to be regulated. 
Uh, because while it's sort of fun that that you know teenagers or or even the average Joe and you read these articles about, I put in five hundred dollars and I was able to get all the all this kind of cash out, or some of the people who are like, I, I took my whole retirement you know account and I doubled it. We see these stories that are out there, and so people think it's sort of this magical thing that I'm just going to dump money into it, and if I watch it, but. There's also many people who have gotten really hurt by cryptocurrency who sort of chased this and they got in it on the wrong time or, or it wasn't explained to them or they were kind of in this funky platform. I mean, we saw stories about Robin Hood. We've seen stories about um, these folks who kind of get into it, not really being informed, but they're wanting to make a quick buck and they've gotten hurt by it. And so I think it now makes sense for it to be treated like any other security and say we need to have some regulations on it. I mean, it's. I mean, I mean, cryptocurrencies. We're seeing tax changes. We're seeing some of the things. So, because people are making some some significant money on there. So, I think that this was a good decision uh, by the Biden administration to take a more hands-on approach. So, when this article came out, and this was actually reported on by Vox to say. Uh, we need to get our hands around this. And there's a lot of cryptocurrencies out there. So um, I think that we could start to see some things this year where where we're going to start start seeing these companies who have just making a ton of money start to get a little bit more regulated and in, in, in for them to have a little bit more oversight. Yeah, did you notice this? I was like maybe a couple weeks ago that um, El Salvador had made the Bitcoin its national currency or one of the cryptocurrencies its national currency. I don't know if it's Bitcoin. Uh, wow. Talk about I don't know if that's a very high high risk move, but it does make one wonder about the, the regulations that will be necessary with this emerging. I mean, certainly if it's, if it's you know adopted by a nation uh, that it is gaining some kind of traction in, in the international community. And I'm it seems like a good thing, but would there be anybody in this country who would say, and in, in, in the United States, who'd say like, no, this is a bad thing? Yeah, I think you would have banks that would say this is something that we're concerned about. Um, so I think with crypto, there's, and, and again, this is a space that continues to change and to evolve. But I'm just going to say in, in the case of like some of the original cryptocurrency technology, the market fluctuated so much that, you know, it, it wasn't like my like I could put a dollar in and get a dollar out. Sometimes I put a dollar in and it might be worth five dollars or it might be worth 50 cents. It was very volatile. And then also the time because it utilizes blockchain technology it's not easy to pull that money out very quickly. And so banks being banks, and also I think for a great majority of the population, we want our money to be fairly stable and fairly predictable. I mean, we have the stock market, we have those type of things, and we see some changes in there, but crypto kind of became kind of a bit of a game. You sort of stuck money inside there and you'd see what would happen. Uh, we also had people who bought things using cryptocurrency, like the person who bought you know a million dollar pizza because they mm -hmm. bought it and then by the time it cashed out, the market had done so well that, you know, that then it was like a million dollars. Quite famously, you know, you know, Elon decided to turn on accept cryptocurrency for the Teslas. Uh, then that quickly got shut off uh, because it was like, maybe that's not such a good idea. So, cause you could pay for something or you could pay for something with currency that either goes up or down. We don't really like inconsistency, but we, for those people who are kind of playing the game and, and lots of these different, um, I think it was like Ethereum is another one. 
you know, we Dogecoin, those type of things. People are kind of playing around with it, but I, I don't think that they fully understand the ramifications of it. And and I think what, what triggered a lot of like, you know, a lot of the, uh, you know, this week was Coinbase going public. Now, now Coinbase is a is sort of a big cryptocurrency aggregator, um, and so they went public, which which you know this is a this is a big move for them. And by going public, there's going to be a big infusion of money for them, and so we're seeing them you know take even a bigger presence in this. And so while while we have a lot of we have the Robinhoods, we have the Coinbases, we have people who are kind of playing cryptocurrency, we're just not seeing a lot of regulation. And another concern we have around these companies, at least in the tech world, is who owns the actual cryptocurrency? So who actually owns the wallet? So some of these companies, you sign up for an account and you say, oh, I want to buy a couple of Bitcoin because I want to get into the game. You don't actually own the Bitcoin. The company that you're working with does. And so it's really not portable. You really can't take your wallet with you. So I, I've, I've heard, I, you know, I've heard a couple people say, is that right? You know, because I like the idea of buying a stock and I'm taking the stock with me. Some companies, it's under their name. When you take the stock, you cash out. So, so I think that there's just a lot of discussion around this place. But definitely, Coinbase going public sort of triggered this. This is a big, uh, you know, you know, of course, them going public. This is a big thing for the market. But also, it's sort of sending a lot of signals to people saying that cryptocurrency is going to be around for a little while, and, and we have lots of choices out there. Uh, we could see some consolidations in the market in the future, but uh, but yeah, with sort of a, an unregulated space, there's also the chances that uh, consumers could really get hurt by it if they're not paying attention. All right, so that makes me think about this other big announcement from the Biden administration around the FTC. What is that, and what kind of implications does this other hawkish move have in the, this this other tech-related component of our of our lives? Yeah, the Biden administration also wants to pull in another expert, and it's uh, and I and I'm going to mess up their name, but it's uh, Alavera Bedoya, I think is the it is the way you pronounce it, but I I could be way off on that. And he's actually the founder of Georgetown Law's Center on Privacy and Technology, and so and he he's been a fairly outspoken critic of facial recognition software and a variety of different sort of surveillance technology that's out there. And his sort of emphasis, and he's, he's talked about a lot of things around these two areas around tech, but he really feels that it, it, will, that, it, that it will hurt marginalized groups. And so he's saying that, you know, these areas, you know, particularly we're talking about civil rights, we're talking about minorities in the U.S. Uh, he, is, he is one of those saying, you know, uh, you know, this technology we have to be very cautious about. And we have to think about how it's being deployed, where it's being deployed. And so this nomination, I think, is a is a very smart move. Um, I think for surveillance people and people who are privacy people, we think that this is a great idea. Um, there has been some mixed reviews this week from law enforcement. There's also been some concerns from the private companies who are who are like in this business because uh, they don't exactly like this nomination because they feel that. Uh, th there could be some influence that could negatively impact their business or for law enforcement organizations. So um, I think I think it's a good move, and I and, and I kind of like somebody you know as somebody who really feels that that security is very important, and that we need to be cautious about any any technology initiative that we have. 
uh, that having somebody there who can sort of scrutinize this technology and ask really good questions, I think is great versus some uh, in our previous administration. Free market. Yeah, 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 because I think that, you know, like you said, any anything we put out there, it amplifies. And I think I think having somebody who can kind of and, and he's been outspoken around um, you know, kind of these big tech companies. I mean, the Amazons, the Facebooks, the Googles. I mean, he's sort of an outspoken guy. And, and right now, big tech is sort of being targeted. And so maybe they feel a little bit more vulnerable and this nomination doesn't help things. But I think it's good to have somebody who's in there and who's involved and also somebody who understands the underlying technology because our elected officials are not prepared to have conversations sure. around surveillance or around it's the crypto. same. It's the same kind of literacy that's necessary, actually, that we were talking about before in medical or scientific literacy. I think technological literacy is going to become an emergent thing, too, that you can't just depend on an expert for everything because then you're going to be powerless and you're not going to understand how to apply that information appropriately when things become more complicated, which they are. Yeah, and and I there, there used to be an organization, and I think it got... can't remember which administration actually got rid of it, but there actually used to be a group within the federal government that they consulted elected officials on technology initiatives and then it got it got cut but i i also feel like for for a lot of these elected officials it's not their job to understand the nuances of crypto or understand the nuances of some of these privacy things they really need to have a group that can sort of advise yeah. them and and help them with this because whenever you watch a congressional oversight committee where they're talking to the CEO of Google or the CEO of Microsoft or they're talking or they're talking to Mark Zuckerberg the CEO of Facebook it's painful because it's like these CEOs are dragged in front of congress and they do they're asked horrible questions because they don't know i mean right. they're, they're like if i if, you know you have congressmen holding up their cell phones going like if i'm sitting next to my friend do you know where i'm sitting it's like it's it doesn't it's not, not even, useful. Yeah, yeah, it's not yeah. even on topic. And so and it's not their job. So so I think that there does need to be some technology literacy for these elected officials, but also maybe an organization that can actually help them advise on policy. Yeah. You know, um, one of the Biden administration's move that was cool was there was a chief science officer appointed who I think serves on their cabinet. I don't know if it's an as needed basis or not. That was exciting because you again, you get what exactly what you talked about. You, you get that that perspective and the important content expertise that needs to be integrated into those decisions that are made because otherwise you are you are going to be in a kind of free-for-all where the the cost can be very very high for a mistake yes absolutely just my two cents yeah (laughs) (laughs) okay one more question um because so far we've talked about biden biden and we've been talking about regulations, but I wanted to put your favorite company in the world on the chopping block today. <laughs> yeah, so it's, you know, poor Apple. And uh, it's it's really unfortunate because th- this story is one that has a lot to it and a lot of depth. And so, um, and unfortunately, it's impacted a lot of lives, you know, in, you know uh, globally. Uh, just because of uh, because of this group called uh, it's an Iraz- it's a sorry it's an Israeli firm uh, I should be a podcaster because I speak so well <laughs> the uh, Israeli firm that is called the NSO group uh, the NSO group is has become very much in the spotlight I mean this year and also and last year a little bit but a lot of emphasis on it on it this year because they came out with this technology and they said we can break into iphones 
And this was very important internationally because it got the attention of law enforcement officials and government organizations where they're like, this is great because, you know, it's difficult to break into iPhones. And so in the NSO group, of course, was questioned very publicly. Uh, you know, it's like, well, how do you how do you make this decision about who to give this technology to? And their response is, well, we're we're vetting this. We're we're making sure that you know you know it goes to you know to vetted customers um, that that are focused on counterterrorism and that they're focused on law enforcement. And then all of a sudden, information is now coming out that's saying. Yeah, you 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 now gave this technology out. You utilized this you know you know this group's technology this technology to target journalists. Uh, you also have people who are like civil rights leaders and human rights advocates in multiple countries, and so we're just not seeing the vetting that they said that they had. And so, so the technology that they had was able they were able to install surveillance software on someone's phone via a text message and the person doesn't even need to click a link. All they had to do was just send the message and then it would enable this this surveillance. And so this week, um, it, and I think I think it was a good move. I mean, it, it's a move that I think I would expect from Apple is um, Apple discovered this vulnerability that that the NS the, that the NSO group was utilizing and uh, independent researchers, you know, had been working on this and they and they said, oops, we did find where they were exploiting this, uh, you know, issue, and then Apple is going to go ahead and release this um, update this week. Uh, if you don't have it all, if you see a little update bubble, go ahead and do it. But uh, if you have an iPhone, I would highly recommend that you just go ahead and apply that update. So it looks like it's been patched. Um, in organizations like this, when they find a vulnerability, it's highly lucrative for them not to publicize it. So. Uh, if this is if this is in fact what NSO was utilizing, uh, now it's been patched, so it's going to be harder for them to sell this type of software. But it's kind of two parts. One, NSO group found this vulnerability. They they were using it to sell sell this technology to their customers so that they could break into phones. The other part of this was the NSO group said that they were vetting customers that they weren't going to let government organizations or nefarious people use this for inappropriate reasons. Turns out they were, and then also. Apple had this vulnerability. They didn't find it. You know, some other folks found it, but then, but then they were able to issue a patch. So why is an Apple security a little bit tighter? Why would just a text message all of a sudden install surveillance technology? So a couple different parts of this story, but I for one am glad that at least this vulnerability was located in that uh, that the patch is going to be fixed as soon as this update gets pushed out to everybody. Yeah. So this Pegasus software is bad news. Um, there was a movie recently that came out called it's a documentary about jamal khashoggi uh it's called dissident and granted it's a documentary i'm not sure to what level i i know all of the facts i mean it's it's the point of view of, of a camera and the people that are selected to be interviewed but we you might recall matt the story of the man that was the journalist that was at the embassy in turkey or the American embassy in Turkey is in one of the embassies yeah, in yeah. Turkey, but he had been pretty critical openly. And uh, according to the movie, that that Pegasus technology had been sold to him and his government to track people, to track those that would be considered dissidents. And Jamal Khashoggi was one of them. And it unfolds the story of how this software was used to track him and turn him into an enemy of the state. And 
And actually, there's a very grisly murder that takes place of this individual after he's lured into the embassy. And then this government denies it, and the Turkish government has every room bugged. And so they actually have an accounting and a recounting of everything that happens. And it was a, a very dramatic... It's a scary thing because it ends up becoming this blackmail tool or this means in our era of, of smearing, which can destroy lives. Of, of weaponized against us for everything. And the way it was used in this movie was pretty nefarious as well, this documentary. Um, and we're not done with it. I mean, this is clearly, it's, it is a sellable technology. I mean, there are different people who have been, been buying it and I'm not sure what the uses are for, uh, other than after watching the documentary, I was very uncomfortable with with it. And I'm glad to hear that Apple is immediately finding where that, that patch might be. But whoa, whoa. Yeah, and I think it's, and this is one of those things that when I talk about it being a global issue, um, governments stockpile vulnerabilities. So when they find issues in, um, it can be your own desktop computer, it can be Microsoft, it can be the Mac operating system, Android, iPhone. When, you know, we have these intelligence organizations that they have groups that are just committed to finding vulnerabilities and leveraging them because they want to spy on whoever that they want to spy on, um, other governments, uh, you know, uh, people within their own, you know, you know, within their own population, it's distance, it's it's protesters, it's it's those type of things. And so these so in even our government uh, here in the United States stockpiles vulnerabilities and they save them up and they use them, which this has been highly debated of should governments, you know, say to these companies, we've discovered this vulnerability, should you fix it? Or is it better for them to save it because they might really need it someday? So, you, you know, people have gone back and forth on this. With the NSO group, I mean, it was like they, it looks like they knowingly gave this technology to people who uh, were going to be doing it for some pretty awful things. I mean, and it has spread globally to such a point that the United Nations has weighed in and said, we really need to have a moratorium on the use of this technology um, until we can develop some, you know, standards and regulations on it because um, a lot of people can be hurt. And like, in, 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 like you said in the documentary, it's like, it can be used in a lot of different ways. I mean, you your cell phone is a walking. I mean, I mean, people talk about Alexa devices and they talk about smart home technology that's listening to them. You have a great surveillance device sitting in your pocket all the time. I mean, it has mm -hmm. cameras, microphones. It contains mm -hmm. all of your messages. Everything coming and going is all stored on this device, and so um, it, it it makes a fantastic surveillance tool. And not to mention your location. And so um, I think the UN weighing in on this it certainly says something because it's saying that this is spreading. And then these companies that are saying you have a problem, you want to monitor this group of people who might not be supportive of your government. Uh, we have a way to fix it. Just write us a check, and then they give the technology, and then you know that that, that government can take the ball and roll with it. Um, is very scary. I mean, and, and I think uh, you know, as as you and I have discussed, it's like it's like there's you know we see these vulnerabilities quite a bit, and then but when it's on your phone, and uh, and you have a government, you have a you have a piece of technology from government that can send you a text message, and you don't even have to click on it. It just does its thing on its own. It's a pretty it's pretty powerful tool, and it's also very frightening. So with that, can we leave on a happy note? Because I always do this. I take this down. We go down into the dregs. 
Um, tell me something good. Uh, I uh, for for brunch today, I am going to have a nice little pomegranate mimosa, and then mm. I, I also have like a little smoked beef egg situation. So I am planning on having just a very delightful brunch today. So I can't that I can't sounds, eat during the show, but uh, that, that that's that, that sounds delicious. <laughs> I am parched and starving, and I think I will do something fun like that too. Um, thank you all for listening, as always. Uh, we always like to hear your, your comments and reviews. Uh, we hope you continue to subscribe. And as always, remember to eat some brunch and then go ahead and change the world. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Brunch. Before we go, show some love to our podcast by leaving us a review. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter, or you can check out our website at sundaybrunchpodcast.org. You can also reach out to the podcast via email at thesundaybrunchpod at gmail.com. That email address again is thesundaybrunchpod at gmail.com. You can also leave us a voicemail, and this is for U.S. callers only, at area code 970-627-7445. Again, that phone number is 970-627-7445. Thanks again, and we hope you will join us next week.